0: told we've been rolling for many minutes, but you're just hearing us now. I'm also told that we're on edge, which is an accurate description of us. <laughs> we're always on edge, on the cutting edge of podcasting here at UConn 360. That's the world's only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. What's up? Ken Best. How you doing? And Maxine Philibong. Hi. Uh, we've got an exciting show for you this week. Um, lots of interesting stuff, lots of cool new things you probably don't know, I guess. But first, let's start with some news, some headlines. Julie, what's new?
1: There are some great results to a clinical trial going on at Yukon Health. Dr. David Weinstein of Yukon Health and Connecticut Children's recently presented what he called remarkable results of his one year clinical trial for a novel gene therapy he developed to treat glycogen storage disease, which is also known as GSD. The genetic liver disorder causes dangerously low blood sugar levels, and patients rely on doses of cornstarch every few hours to keep their glucose steady. If they miss a dose, they can suffer seizures or die. The clinical trial was done with only one third of a dose of the therapy to test the safety in patients with GSD type 1a, but the The three patients who received the treatment have all been able to reduce their intake of cornstarch with one patient completely off of the cornstarch. Dr. Weinstein treats 700 patients from 51 countries as director of the GSD program here, and it's the largest center in the world for the care and treatment of this condition. All three of the patients in this cohort will participate in the next phase of the trial, a four-year follow-up clinical trial study. And in addition, three patients are enrolled in clinical trial testing for a higher gene therapy dose. You can learn more about Dr. Weinstein and GSD by visiting magazine.uconn.edu slash issue and clicking into the summer 2017 issue. The story is called Free to Be Imperfect.
0: It's a really interesting story. And uh, I was reading it, I was really struck by the patient they interviewed who talked about how... This condition meant that he, every time he went to sleep, he worried that he would die in his sleep because he mm-hmm. had to get up every six hours, and so this sort of frees him to have.
1: So it's, hor- it's actually every I think two hours for most patients uh-huh. that they would have to get up. So now he can get through the whole night. that. Yeah. it's very cool.
2: Can we have a lot of things on this campus? We do, as I think you know. It's a controversial but statement. <laughs> w- one of the things we <laughs> had not had is an academic press. Oh, really? That was until last week. Cool. When there was an announcement made by the Yukon Humanities Institute. That they have established the World Poetry Books Group, which is now the only publisher in the United States dedicated solely to publishing books of international poetry in English translation. World Poetry Books is a collaborative initiated by literatures, cultures, and language professor Peter Constantine, who spoke with Julie last year about translation in Episode 9. Of our podcast, he says the goal of the press is to champion poets and translators from all stages of their careers by creating new communities of readers, both inside and outside of the university. The mission of the organization is to publish and promote books of vital world poetry from languages other than English. Professor Constantine says every language has its Walt Whitman, its C.P. Cavafy, or Anne Carson. Yet most world poetry, especially from underrepresented languages, remains underpublished and undiscovered. They've already got their first group of translated books, which includes the work of Italian poet Giovanni Pascoli, Chinese poet Ye Lujin, an anthology of Greek poetry, the Bohemian-Austrian poet Ranier Maria Rilke, Greek poet Maria Elena and Homerica by Phoebe Giannassini, whose work is considered The Contemporary Odyssey, which was translated from the Greek by our UConn professor, Brian Sneedon. For more information, you can go to dot oneword.com.
0: Very cool. I have a great news item.
2: Do you?
1: Uh,
0: this was actually brought to my attention by someone on Twitter, John Scannell. John, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that name incorrectly, is a class of uh, 2014 graduate who asked me, where is the Gardner Dow plaque? As I assume some people will know, uh, on the side of the Holly Armory, there was a plaque commemorating Gardner Dow, who was a World War I veteran and a UConn student who died while playing a football game at the University of New Hampshire.
1: Has the plaque disappeared?
0: So the plaque is gone. I was unaware. John sent me a picture. So I did some sleuthing, did some, uh, some detective work, by which I mean I called Mike Jednak at the <laughs> UConn facilities. And uh, the Office of Veterans Affairs has recently moved into the Holly Armory which is thematically appropriate, and they have a renovated space, and they requested that the plaque be moved inside to their new location because Gardner-Dow is a veteran, and the main sports field at UConn was Gardner-Dow Field for many, many years. So mystery solved. Good. The Gardner Dow gone. It's not gone. It's just inside the Holly Armory. You're welcome to stop in anytime. Well, no. not anytime, like not 3 in the morning. <laughs> Don't break into Holly Armory to look at a plaque. <laughs> Please. It's weird.
1: You, University podcast insights break in.
0: I will say, you you know, in the past, you could have looked at it at three in the morning because it was just on the wall outside. And I have a question for Maxine. It's a student question. <laughs> oh, man. Was there a lot of talk on campus about the climate strike, which, as we were recording, was last week?
1: There was a lot of talk on campus about the climate strike. There were posters everywhere. A lot of people that I know went off for the climate strike. There are people who left class to go to the climate strike. Um, it was a very, very big event on campus. Almost everyone was talking about it
0: good yeah i was interested because I, I did see a lot of students were on the uh, quad and uh glad to know there was a lot of talk about it students are getting active and interested in world affairs
1: maybe in 30 <laughs> years on whatever kind of podcast exists they'll be talking about the climate strike
0: maybe well on this podcast that exists on currently bleep
1: bloops history <laughs> <porter>. <laughs> well they
0: don't even <laughs> yeah that's right it's a robot named Bleep bloop in the future good prediction uh, that's
1: what i'm here for. <laughs>
0: Uh, before bleep bloop takes over <laughs> julie you've got a story of i think general interest this is kind of, and there's a news hook to it too there right there is that just
1: is fell into my lap ripped
0: from today's headlines it
1: is The governors of Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey have begun meeting on how to align the state's marijuana programs as talk turns to legalizing recreational marijuana use across the United States. And this has been a really newsworthy item anyway. The cannabis industry is growing everywhere, and our own university made headlines last year when it became the first public university in the United States and one of the first of any in the country to offer a course on how to grow marijuana. As one local paper joked, it was a dream come true for generations of potheads. But of course, horticulture of cannabis, from seed to harvest, is not about growing a pot plant on your windowsill. The plant science course was developed in response to the burgeoning medical marijuana industry in our state and is open to students from any major with no required prerequisites. The hemp horticulture course is taught primarily by adjunct professor Matt DeBacco, who earned his bachelor's degree and master's degrees in plant pathology and education here at UConn. DeBacco, longtime plant science professor Gerald Berkowitz, and a litany of guest speakers from the industry, not only teach students how to grow cannabis plants, but prepare them for jobs they might pursue in the field. DeBacco said the course grew out of research Berkowitz has been doing on the plant, studying the field production of industrial hemp while exploring methods of CBD extraction.
3: So the goal is to, okay, if we're doing research and publishing data and researching the plant, well now we need an education and outreach component. So this is where bring it to undergraduates is a great idea, and proposed to have a course held, and enrollment was very high. We maxed out, and we were in the largest lecture hall on campus. So it's kind of like our outreach there to tell people basically from seed or the very beginnings of a plant all the way to the end. The final portion of the course, the last third or so, was uh, experts from the field because Despite the large class size, it was a very diverse student body. We had a lot of students from the School of Business interested from a business aspect. Uh, others for lawyers, others for plant science, uh, others communications, just, you know, were interested in the course in general. Uh, so we really tried to touch on all different majors centered around this one plan.
1: It's offered to such a diverse array of students, Tobacco says, because as the cannabis industry blossoms, it'll require the involvement of many types of people and professionals.
3: So broad offering, because it's a broad topic, Uh, it's in the news a lot, just something that the public needs to be aware of uh, and really needs to be educated about, and that's kind of the goal of universities, to be on the forefront of education. A lot of other universities are ignoring it and not really putting a lot of time in or kind of pretending it's not happening. UCAN here is on the forefront of educating people about what it takes to grow the plant, and you may wonder why a business major would be, you know, anywhere interested in how to grow a plant. Well, there's a lot of inputs required. There's a lot of lighting, media to use as far as, you know, how to irrigate it, how to be efficient, what fertilizers to use, all that kind of comes in and together, and from a business standpoint, understanding those requirements of a plant are good knowledge to have.
1: Senior Elaine Wemhoff, an applied resource economics major, took the course last spring.
4: I decided to take this course because I think that it's really interesting that UConn is at such like the forefront of this industry. Um, I think that it also really helps people. One of my career goals is to go into a career for the common good. So that doesn't necessarily mean that I want a... career in this industry, although I was really interested in it because I do believe that they do do things for the common good. In addition, I'm interested in like agriculture and the environment. So a lot of the sustainability practices that are being introduced into this industry really interest me since it is growing so much and since it's really cool that they can be sustainable while they're growing this industry. I thought that was really cool. So I just wanted to learn a little bit more about it. And also, while I have the chance, I want to say that I'm also really proud to be a student here and in this course because I think that there's a huge stigma on marijuana. And I think that this course really, really goes to fight against that and show you that, you know, there are really children that have seizures that are benefiting from this drug. Even my, there is a big medicinal value to this, and it's not just like a drug. And that's why, you know, the laws have changed and it's showing that. And I think that it's really cool that higher education is now also on board with that as well.
1: Wemhoff has a point about the course fighting stigmas associated with marijuana. Despite the pot jokes rampant in headlines and news story leads, the course was so rigorous that those expecting it to be an easy A were weeded right out. A number of students dropped the class after experiencing a few sessions, the professor said.
3: Yes, people think, oh, it's a plant, it's easy to grow, you just water it every once in a while, uh, but as far as the scale that we're going to be probably growing this plant at for the public, uh, you need to understand all the different aspects and many different options. You know, plants need light. A lot of these are grown indoors, where well, there's a lot of different lighting options. Uh, the reason why there's a lot of different lighting options is that you to offer some benefits but each offer some drawbacks. So there's no, like, one 100% right answer. So having students have an appreciation for all the diverse options that exist and why one may select one type of light versus another is important.
1: Wemhoff said she definitely encountered other students who thought
4: it would be a, quote, easy weed course and were shocked to
1: find it was something very different.
4: Yes, it's been super, super rigorous, but I genuinely think that it's been so worth it. I'm so happy that I did it, and I did find myself spending a lot of time outside of class studying it, but it's something that I'm interested in, and I really do believe in the medicinal values. I hate to say this, but I think that those kids are part of the stigma and part of the problem because, you know, this is really serious and you have to take it seriously. And I come to class and I'm excited to learn about it. And, you know, I'm not laughing at the board. I'm really, I'm really into the material and like really into being a good student in this class, despite the fact that it's a class on marijuana. I apply my same academic rigor to this class that I do to all my other ones, and it definitely needs it for sure.
1: Tobacco agrees that the course and the research happening here at UConn will go a long way to reducing the Stigma and informing the public.
3: The whole goal is to provide actual scientific based information. To, so we need to study that. Uh, through that will come hopefully federal funding and then peer reviews so that we can get some correct information out there. Right now, there's a lot of claims that are made, but not a lot of supporting substantial evidence for that. So by having this established university, we now can start to open the doors to doing research, to getting correct, scientifically proven, uh, peer-reviewed information out there to the general public.
1: I was impressed with when I did visit with the guest speaker there. They talked a lot about the kind of career aspect of it and the business aspect of it. And how does that fit into learning about, you keep calling it just this plant. It's not -hmm. not this huge burgeoning industry, but it's... So why is that a big focus of...
3: That's I think it's, uh, the reason why we talk about um, horticulture of cannabis is, is the growing aspect. And it's getting not only an understanding, but I think also an appreciation for that. Because in our industry that is going to be emerging uh, from this, a lot of it is grown in Connecticut, and we have very high standards here. It's grown differently in different states. Some may have the opportunity to grow it outdoors, some more indoors and in close environments. So understanding those different business opportunities is also important. With business opportunities come jobs. So it's more than just growing. It can be the brokering. It can be the extraction of the particular chemicals from the plant. It can be the research on those isolates and those chemicals. It could be the selling of those isolates. It could be the purification process that's used. Uh, It's very diverse and that's great because there's a lot of options, but also can get like overwhelming at times. Uh, And trying to touch on all that was a challenge. Uh, We covered everything from what the very famous 420 means to the different types of cultivars for the plant, the uh, different compounds it can produce. Uh, We're focused here the hemp and CBD variety, it's THC, that's where the psychoactive high, and that's not the focus. So understanding what classifies a plant as marijuana, that'd be the high THC, or the hemp or as CBD, and that has potentially more of the medical benefits.
1: In his visit to the class last spring, guest lecturer and UConn alum Reno Ferraris talked about many of the topics that Tobacco tried to hit on throughout the duration of the class. Ferreres is chief operations officer at Connecticut Pharmaceutical Solutions, one of four licensed marijuana growers in the state. Before taking the class through his company's processes and telling them about the types of jobs available there, he discussed the high standards that firms in the industry must adhere to in order to protect consumers, and compared Connecticut's medical program, where expert pharmacists ensure patients receive the right type of marijuana for their conditions, with looser models such as California's.
5: So I don't know if this is the perfect scenario, or this is the perfect scenario, or maybe it's a combination we need to be somewhere in between the two, but we can all agree that there needs to be standardization, there needs to be labeling, there needs to be some assurance that the that stuff is pure and wholesome.
1: One thing the course doesn't currently include is a hands-on growing aspect, but DeBacco says an advanced course might be offered in the future.
3: We're hoping to maybe progress maybe to an advanced course in the future where there could be some more hands-on, uh, especially as there's more plants grown, more grow space. Uh, we did have a publicly viewable grow tent to allow students to kind of see uh, a little bit what was talked about in class, as I said, the different lighting, the different irrigation options. So at least they could, those that were interested could go through and see that. But having the advanced course would allow potentially for more of that to get to, into more of the details for those that are really interested in more, learning more.
1: The evolution of marijuana laws and the industry itself here and around the country means it only makes sense to prepare those students with an interest for what Forbes in 2015 called the best startup opportunity for entrepreneurs and investors. When the course was first announced, Professor Berkowitz told UConn Today, Our students see career opportunities and want to gain experience. Businesses need highly trained scientists to support the growth of this industry, and they are seeking talented graduates to enter this workforce. With this course, we can help both groups. It's a win-win. Wemhoff, for one, is happy her university is preparing students like her for an industry that's expected to generate as much as $40 billion by 2021.
4: I really do enjoy that the class is here because I think that it really does help those that want to learn about marijuana in a different light, that they're able to do that and that it's not just some drug to take, like that it really is medicinal and has benefits and you can really study the science of it and the complexities of it and growing it and you know what's healthy for people, what's not healthy for people. So I think to reduce reduce that stigma so that people feel comfortable going into that industry, especially really intelligent people, that they feel comfortable going into that and doing that research because it's important and it really needs to be done.
0: Well, it's very interesting.
4: Yeah, it's pretty cool that we have that course. And for those interested,
1: anyone on campus, as I mentioned, students can take. It is SPSS 3995, and it will be offered in the spring.
2: This is something that normal folks have been trying to get going for decades. I
1: thought you were talking about just like regular right. folks, yeah, normal let's, let's as Let's be in... clear, I
2: meant
0: NORML is the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws.
1: Yes, so very you're... interesting to see where this is going to go. I just
2: want to see if you were paying attention.
0: I was paying attention. This is an area of law <laughs> that's evolving, and law plays heavily into what Ken has for us this Guys, week. the
1: Segway King is back. <laughs> the
0: Segway King is back. Ken, tell us about it.
2: In 2014, UConn Law alum Mike Chase started an anonymous Twitter feed called At Crime a Day, where he describes how easy it is to break the law, even in an obscure way. He digs into the tens of thousands of federal statutes to find the most bizarre way someone can become a federal criminal, such as clogging a toilet in a national forest, writing a threatening letter to a circus clown, (laughs) which falls under the animal enterprise statutes, leaving the United States with too many coins in your pocket or baggage, specifically $5 in nickels or $25 in pennies, or mislabeling a box of macaroni. You can be arrested and charged for all of those crimes. But after five years of being anonymous, Mike decided to out himself by writing a book titled How to Become a Federal Criminal, an Illustrated Handbook for the Aspiring Offender. It's a humorous look at a very serious subject. Mike's day job is being a white-collar criminal defense attorney in the Hartford office of Shipman and Goodwin. And he's also an adjunct professor at the School of Law teaching trial practice. I went to Hartford, visited him in his office, and we talked about the book. There are tens of thousands of federal statutes. I believe the number I heard was 300,000. Right. The specific nature of the crimes and the potential punishment is an issue that you've talked about Mm -hmm. to the point where you're asking the lawmakers to be a little bit more careful about punishing people, stopping their lives, putting them in jail, or finding them where they're, they're bankrupt on such small crimes. And it's not an issue that's
5: really new. It's something that scholars have been yelling into the void about for a long, long time. They've been saying, hey, look, the criminal sanction is reserved for these extreme consequences, these extreme wrongs to to society. And when Congress gets so careless that they allow... 300,000 or 500,000, nobody really knows the number. I mean, these are all guesses. But when they allow that many things to be criminally punishable, right, that's the number of things that can make a person forever branded a criminal. They do need to be more careful. Partisan lines really shouldn't even get involved in that. I think we should all uh, acknowledge that, hey, look, maybe some of these things are civil wrongs, but they're probably, they shouldn't be criminal
2: wrongs. What would be the solution for trying to at least bring this down to a reasonable pairing of of the laws because the the general areas that federal law at least are looking at over history guns drugs immigration fraud are the major areas for federal crimes the constitution our founding document says that
5: the government's a government of limited powers and it says the federal government pretty much leaves the states alone unless there's this interstate component involved, right, or, or a foreign component involved. And through a provision of the Constitution called the Interstate Commerce Clause, Congress has effectively over the last couple centuries said virtually everything in modern American life has an interstate connection. I mean, the Internet has done it for us. Yes, they have gone pretty far afield of those core crimes. Those do remain the ones that you listed, fraud, guns, drugs, immigration. Those remain the ones that are filling the court dockets. But you still have about 2% of the federal docket that's filled with these miscellaneous regulatory crimes, which means that a couple thousand people a year still are getting criminal convictions for things that you would never think of, like you know, mislabeled fruit cocktail or, I don't know, maybe clogging a toilet in a national forest. I don't know. But, but you know, those things get included.
2: But your point really being the severity of the implications of a federal crime could bar you from jobs, yep. all the things that would be typical of just living your life.
5: and And not to mention having to foot the bill for lawyers, which are expensive. Also, take aside imprisonment set aside loss of rights what about just being branded a criminal right a, a label that should be reserved for the most offensive moral wrongs in society not things that we would think of as minutiae
2: the attractive thing and the interesting thing the funny thing about this book is is the minutiae right. that you're that you're pointing up so what's the weirdest thing that's that's in there that you that you've come across so far because I realize you haven't really This is, of the 300,000 laws, you've only got a couple thousand at this point.
5: Yeah, we'll have to circle up at the end of the next 800 years when I finish the task, and I'll tell you then. I've always loved margarine crimes. I've loved these crimes that came out of the feuding between margarine and the dairy industry. And when margarine was effectively getting punished by dairy producers and they were saying, we want to make it very hard for margarine to do business and eat up our market share. So they put all these onerous requirements, some of which remain on the books today, like if you're serving individual servings of margarine in a restaurant, they must be triangular in shape. I like that particularly issue close to my heart because here in Hartford, Connecticut in the 1950s, a guy named Joe Trawoski was actually hauled off and charged criminally for selling square pats of margarine in his restaurant.
2: (laughs) Well, the food crime pyramid is a favorite of mine when I looked at it. I copied the page. uh, And the margarine and butter crimes you just referenced are at the top of the food pyramid, Mm -hmm. followed by the fruit and vegetable crimes, the meat, egg, and dairy crimes, and the bread and pasta crimes. And I think the prime example that you point to in the book is the ham and cheese sandwich. Right. And the regulatory impacts of the ham and cheese sandwich, uh, <laughs> would you explain that for the for the unknown listeners?
5: Yes, sure. So, I mean, we all have heard of the ham sandwich's unique role in the criminal justice system, which is that it, it's the old lore of all criminal defendants is, hey, look, you could indict a ham sandwich because it's it's very easy to get an indictment. But what a lot of people don't know is how regulated a ham and cheese sandwich actually is in the United States, so much so that two federal agencies, the FDA and the USDA, they regulate that sandwich intermittently, depending on where it is in its life cycle. So,
2: and whether there's a piece of bread on top, exactly or not. exactly
5: right. They're, they've actually there are government guidance documents that have been issued. You can go find them on the internet, real easy. Where the USDA and the FDA have drawn a line in the sand and they've said, "Okay, open face sandwiches, you have that. Closed face sandwiches, we'll, we'll take that over here." And it's 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 sort of ludicrous if it wasn't real. And, uh, and and it's true. So every component of a ham and cheese sandwich is regulated by the federal government in some in some way.
2: Now we just had an incident recently about weather forecasting <laughs> by a non meteorologist, and there are statutes for That's this, right. which I would like you to address.
5: <laughs> no, it's exactly right. And so this was this was something of a kerfuffle, right? We had. A, an actual you know National Weather Service forecast. There were disputes about whether or not uh, Alabama was gonna be affected as a state or not. And for reasons untold, we were all shown in America a, a, a weather a map, a forecast projection by the president that showed some manipulation, we'll call it, right? There was a circle that was extended into Alabama. A few years back, I had tweeted that it is in fact a federal crime to issue a counterfeit or a false weather service uh, forecast. There's a good faith concern there, which is you don't wanna cause panic or you also don't wanna cause people to stay put when they're in real danger. And it is one of those crimes that has virtually never been prosecuted, but we did see what appeared to be a pretty blatant example of it, right? A forecast issued that was, Wrong. And what I did there was I actually broke out an earlier tweet, which didn't have much context. It was sounded silly, but a lot of people said, "Well, this is never going to happen, right? Who's ever going to do this? What is the circumstance in which this happens?" And now we were staring in the face a very real example where, okay, there is a a National Weather Service forecast that has been manipulated and it's false and it's being represented as true. And, and so I drilled into the legislative history, how it came about, what concerns were, were, were being addressed there, and it became part of the conversation. Do I, think, do I think the president is going to get prosecuted for that? No, I don't. But it is important to know that we have so many federal criminal statutes on the books that you can, in fact, accidentally commit a federal crime, even if you're
2: president. What, what did you expect to be asked about this that you haven't been asked yet?
5: The thing that sort of lurks in the background that I think a lot of people think, sometimes they say, is, are people actually prosecuted for these crimes? Probably not. You know, how much of a problem is this? Is this worth addressing? To that, I I always go back to this notion that we watched... Uh, schoolhouse rock and we watched how a bill gets made and we sort of had an understanding of what the constitution says and we said look the people in washington are writing the laws they go through this bicameral legislature then the president looks at them and he either vetoes it or he, or he signs it and that's how we get laws and those are laws to be respected and i, I do think that it's a problem when washington is sort of divorced from the lawmaking process, and that, and that you have these regula- regulations where regulators are not trying to create crimes, Congress isn't paying attention, and you end up with this body of criminal law. What you end up doing is ceding not just power from Congress to regulators, but all of that power assen- essentially to prosecutors. And and I think what we've seen, if we've seen anything over the last couple of years, it's that when you entrust too much enforcement authority, in particular people. If you don't agree with those decisions or if they're politically motivated, that can be a pretty scary thing. And under the current system, unless there's change, there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do about it. I think if anything, some of these things may have started out looking like a lark. They may have looked silly or as some sort of just pure satire. But the truth is, I think they actually touch on a deeper issue, which is how much discretion do we want to entrust people with when our freedom is on, on the line. You know, we've sort of touched on that, but I think that's an important point that underlies the whole project.
2: Uh, so you have to be careful, folks, out there. You never know when you could be breaking the law. That and book is hysterical. There are, but this is a serious subject, as he says. People have to think, specifically the lawmakers, about what they can do to change things so people are not seriously harmed by being charged with a crime that is not that serious. I
0: hope we're not implying that writing a threatening letter to a circus clown is not serious. I mean, like, that that should be illegal, right? I mean, writing a threatening letter to anyone should be illegal.
1: Absolutely. It's just the fact that it's so specific, I think.
0: H- have you ever committed any federal crimes, do you think?
1: I like, hope not. In the book? What was the one? Oh, no.
0: This whole podcast has been an elaborate sting. <laughs>
1: She's trying to get you to admit to
0: well, the breaking food, the law. The food
2: pyramid is really the serious thing. <laughs> the Yukon
1: Narc podcast. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. Well, you know, from crime on the high seas to uh, back to campus, where we, I guess we do have high seas, right? Uh, Avery Point. Does that count? Long Island Sound? Is no. That, no, that's not, the, not high the high seas. seas. No. I wanted to do a Tom's History Corner prompted by something I read in the Daily Campus today. Mm-hmm. It got me a little peeved. So this was about the Depot campus. And since it's October. Spooky. Uh, yeah, exactly. This is maybe thematically appropriate, but there was a reference in a Daily Campus opinion column to UConn having bought the land that is now the Depot Campus. It's
1: not something we'd ever do.
0: No. So I want to talk about the history of the Depot Campus, which is kind of like an infamous aspect of UConn. It's something that comes up this time of year. And in my capacity as someone who has to deal with the film and TV requests, I deal with it a lot.
1: It is your favorite area of expertise. It's my least favorite.
0: No, that's <laughs> not true. No, that's It does
1: true. come up in an inordinate amount in your job, I it think. It does.
0: So if you don't know, the Depot Campus uh, is a property on Route 44 in Mansfield that used to be known as the Mansfield Training School, which was a facility established in 1919 that was a residential care facility, I guess, for people who we today would say have developmental disabilities or um, psychological disorders or in some cases just behavioral problems. It was, mm-hmm. it was a, They cast a wide net back then. And this was the common practice in the United States at the time, large institutional facilities. At its height in the 1960s, there were almost 1,900 people living there. Wow. And almost 700 staffers, including many who lived on the campus. This was a big operation. They had their own power plant. They had their own fire department. They had their own uh, beauty salon and barbershop. They had a farm where they grew their own food. They had uh, industrial textile workshops where they had giant looms where they made products for sale. It was a self-sustaining community.
1: That's really interesting.
0: And there were other aspects about it, too. Like they had a band that played uh, on the Ed Sullivan Show and played at the White House for John Kennedy.
1: Hmm.
0: They had a, a famous chorus. All kinds of different things. But there were also, as was common in facilities of this type at the time, lots of problems. And people uh, the people who lived there were not always treated very well and in some cases were treated probably in ways that would be criminal today. So starting in the 1960s but really picking up steam in the late 70s, there was a movement across the country called deinstitutionalization Mm -hmm. in which these large uh, institutional facilities were attacked by lawsuits and by government, new legislation aimed at getting people in the facilities out of large institutions and into community care. Deinstitutionalization had a very mixed record, which we don't have to get into. But as a result, from its height, about 1,900 people in the 60s by the early 90s there were fewer than 30 people living there.
1: I didn't even realize it was around that long.
0: This is a giant facility. There at its height there were 100 buildings on the campus. Now there are about 50. So the state closed it, found placements for everyone who had been living there. Then the state did what occasionally the state likes to do and <laughs> assumes Yukon will save the day. <laughs> and so we didn't buy the property. We were given the property. It
1: was hoisted upon Yes. Us. We
0: did not have a choice. Uh, so since then, UConn has tried to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. And we do have some really interesting work being done there. We have found use for a lot of the buildings. Julie and I were just there this summer.
1: We did a really cool thing there. Yeah,
0: we were participating in an experiment. A haunted experiment. No, it wasn't a haunted experiment <laughs> at all. It was, it was an engineering experiment um, about haunting. No, and so, <laughs> uh, so we've tried to make the most of it. But a lot of the buildings had been uninhabited for decades by the time we got it in the early 90s. And... They are. They have good bones, as they say. I mean, they're made of brick. They're very solid. But on the they're outside. very spooky. Yeah. They, uh, so they're they're falling apart inside, and in some cases there are. I mean, there's like rampant black mold. There's asbestos issues. There's all kinds of remediation issues, as you would imagine. This place had a coal fired power plant. Mm. <laughs> I mean, want to think about what's in the ground around that?
1: Is that why we can't just knock them down?
0: Oh, uh, we j- can't just knock them down because it would be very expensive to do remediation, and also because it's on the National Register of Historic Places. So we would actually have to get a law passed allowing us to knock down these buildings. So they exist in kind of a weird limbo where we can't renovate them because it would be very, very, very expensive. And what would be the point when we have a campus here where lots of people attend class and live and we can't tear them down. So they've become a popular destination for thrill seekers. (laughs) Uh, And every year in the fall particularly freshman students at UConn, go out to the Depot campus to see if they can find ghosts. Side note, ghosts aren't real. Um, (laughs) What? Yeah. uh, We can have a longer discussion about that. But the problem with this is it's really dangerous. Some of those buildings are not safe at all for people to be in. A few years ago, someone was stealing copper from one of the buildings, which is also something you should not do, (laughs) and fell off the roof and was in intensive care for over a week, nearly died. It's really not. I mean, people just fall through floors. I mean, it's, it's dangerous out there. There have been some horror movies shot there. One is called House of Dust. If you uh, if you get a chance to see it, it was made in the early 2000s. They used some exteriors there and also shot at Eastern Connecticut State University. It's not bad. But in general, <laughs> high praise. High praise. In general, we say no to ghost hunting TV shows and I seriously get 3 or 4 requests from ghost hunting TV shows every year.
1: We still have ghost hunting TV shows are, around to request. There are a lot.
0: There was one really hurt to say no to it. It was called The Ghost Wrapper. <laughs>
1: I can only imagine. And it was
0: someone who traveled to haunted sites around America and rapped about them.
1: That's amazing.
0: And the reason we say no. Invite him back. The the reason we say no is because once people see these, they want to come out and see for themselves that there are ghosts. Side note, ghosts aren't real. And um, they can – it's one thing to, like, just drive around during the daytime. That's fine. It's public property. But people try to get into the buildings, and they try to get into the buildings at night. There have been fires started there. There was a fire started in February of this year, and our fire department – can't just watch an old building on that campus burn down because there's no electricity there's no gas hookup so if there's a fire that means someone set the fire so they have to go in and make sure everyone is out of the building and that's really dangerous for them so in conclusion this is old man breen (laughs) saying stay off my lawn in this case (laughs) my lawn is the old mansfield training school now the depot campus and uh it's not haunted it this whole
1: episode is just a PSA to it, stay out of those buildings. This whole
0: podcast. This is what we've been building This is what to.
1: like Tom's long con resulted yeah, this is a, in. Playing this is the it. long game, Breen.
0: Um, so, yeah, that's the Depot campus. It's a very interesting story, fascinating history. There are former residents who are still alive and who still meet every <laughs> month, have breakfast in Willimanic. Um But, uh, yeah, it's not haunted because nothing is haunted.
1: <laughs> Except your soul. <laughs> just
0: kidding. <laughs> on, on that note... <laughs> Uh, next week, uh, Bleep Bloop will be taken over <laughs> for me because I've.
1: Oh, you're sure it's not for me?
0: Because uh, I've, I've fulfilled my destiny and told people not to come to the Depot campus. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening. Um, before we go, if you're craving more of this, or on Twitter at UConn Podcast. Uh, Maxine, you're also on Twitter.
1: I am on Twitter at Maxine Philavong. Julie. At Julie Bartuca.
0: Ken, we're going to make a Twitter account for you. What do you say? Let's
1: do it. There is um, one. Not a good idea. Not a
2: good idea. I'll
1: benefit be you, Ken. I votes. have a plug. Can I plug?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, UConn Health Journal will be live soon after you hear this at healthjournal.yukon.edu. And if you're going to be in Milwaukee yes. between October 13th and 16th, particularly for the High Ed Web Conference, we're going to be presenting about podcasting because we're so good at it.
2: <laughs> 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 we are. <clears throat> oh.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: Ken, anything you want to plug?
2: Today.yukon.edu. That's right. where you find me.
0: And you can hear us on Friday mornings on WHUS. UConn Sound Alternative.
2: At eleven o'clock. Maxine.
1: I have nothing. Me neither.
0: (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Don't come to the depot campus.